Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Thanks for tuning into our series, The Follower's Trail Guide, Navigating the Path of Jesus, where we're asking the question, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? As we walk through Jesus' farewell discourse to his followers in the book of John, we'll learn to follow in the steps of Christ as he marks out the way of discipleship for us. All right, John chapter 14 is where we are. We are in these chapters that have often been referred to as the farewell discourse. The farewell discourse. And we are especially looking at John chapter 14, verses 15 through 31. John chapter 14, verses 15 through 31 is where we are. We call these chapters the farewell discourse because they are right before Jesus bids farewell to his disciples. He's at the end of his ministry. He's at the end of his life, right before he dies, right before he rises, right before he rises even further to his Father in heaven, towards he ascends. So he is one last time all alone with his disciples, preparing them, encouraging them, equipping them for life after him, you know, uh, A.D., you might, you might say. And I've given you guys a little bit of an overview uh, to help see the big picture of where we've been and where we're going this morning. Uh, these bullets represent the first four sermons uh, that we've, we've looked at over the last few weeks. Um, sort of the main message, you might say, of the farewell discourse is Jesus is saying, I am departing. I am leaving. Um, and then everything that flows out of that uh, sort of flows out of that. Um, so the first message we looked at was the first 20 verses of chapter 13. Jesus says, I am leaving, so you all serve one another. In other words, I'm leaving you guys. I'm not going to be serving you in the way that I have been, but you guys are going to continue to serve one another. And that's when we saw Jesus wash their feet, and he said, as I've served you, so you guys serve one another. A servant is not greater than his master. And if I, your master, have served you and wash your feet, then you guys got to do the same. In the nitty-gritty of life, even after Jesus leaves, the church is going to continue to serve one another in sacrificial ways. And then Jesus turns the corner a little bit, a little bit of a different theme from service to love. I am leaving. I am no longer going to be physically present in your lives, but you guys are going to be present in one another's lives, lovingly present in one another's lives. And he gives those powerful verses in that section. He says, by this, the world will know you are my disciples by how you love one another. That verse is from this section here uh, at the end of chapter 13. And then, so, th- so these are, those are sort of communal exhortations, right? Jesus is saying, you guys serve one another. You guys love one another in light of my absence. And then Jesus shifts a little bit, uh, less about exhorting them and more about assuring them. Hey, I'm leaving, and so you're anxious, so you're afraid, so you're confused. So he wants to assure the disciples. We saw last week how he said that, yes, I'm leaving, but I'm departing to go prepare a place for you. And he talks about his, his father's house, where there are many rooms, and he is the way to this future dwelling place. So he, is, he assures them by saying, hey, where I'm going, I'm preparing a place for you. And then this week, we're going to see that he says, yes, I'm leaving, but I'm going to return in this really important and powerful way. So let me read these verses for us. John chapter 14, verses 15 through 31. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither knows him or sees him. You know him, the Spirit of truth, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to Jesus, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not manifest yourself to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring you to remembrance of all that I have spoken to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When was the last time someone left and their departure was painful for you? Maybe one of your children left for college or moved away for a new job. Maybe your spouse or another loved one was deployed for military service. Maybe a good friend is being relocated for work or moving away to help an aging family member. When was the last time someone left And their departure was painful for you. One of these experiences, one of these painful experiences of departure that's about to happen here to all of us is the Michigan Snowbirds, right? Tom and Jan are headed to the Sunshine State. Maria and Hillmore are headed out to Texas. Dana's already migrated south. Last Sunday was her last Sunday here. They're all just going to leave us to suffer here. I'm just kidding. I am happy for them. And I tell them I'm going to live vicariously through you guys. But it's hard to see your friends go. It's hard to lose the people you love. And a part of you is like, don't leave us. We need you. Life would be better. Life would be easier if you would stay. Well, that's where the disciples are at. Jesus has made clear to them that his hour has come, and he is about to depart. And where he is going, the disciples cannot come. 
His ministry is coming to an end. In fact, his life will soon come to an end. And that's the worst kind of separation that can happen, right? When we're separated from our loved ones through death. Never to see them. No longer to be in their presence. Disciples know that this pain of separation from Jesus is coming for them. So throughout these chapters, the disciples have asked Jesus, where are you going? Why can't we come with you? How can we know the way to you? And it's through these different questions that we can sense their anxiety is rising. As Jesus' departure draws near, the disciples are uncertain, they're confused, and they're afraid. And you can sense that a part of them is just wanting to blurt out, don't leave us, Jesus. We want you to stay. Life would be better and easier if you were still with us. But I want you to see how opposite Jesus sees the whole situation. And this just happens all too commonly throughout the Gospels. The disciples are seeing things one way, and Jesus is seeing that same thing the exact opposite way. Listen to how Jesus sees this whole situation. He says in verses 27 through 28, Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father. In other words, Jesus says, I've got good news for you. Not only should you not be sad that I'm leaving, you should be rejoicing that I'm leaving. Now imagine hearing this from one of the people who've left you before. So for example, maybe a family member or loved one is being sent overseas for military service and you are heartbroken. But just before they leave, they say, hey, you shouldn't be sad that I'm leaving. You should be happy. You should rejoice. And it's like, wait, what? (laughs) How is that good for me? How is this consoling me right now? But that's what Jesus says to these grief-stricken disciples. Don't be troubled. If you loved me, you would rejoice that I'm leaving. And here's what Jesus knows that his disciples don't yet get. Here's what Jesus understands that his disciples are struggling with. By finishing his mission on earth, dying on the cross, rising from the grave, ascending to heaven... It's only by finishing that mission that Jesus is then able to send his disciples the Holy Spirit. It is only by finishing his mission of dying, rising, and descending that Jesus is then able to bestow upon his people his Spirit. And that's what he begins to explain here in John 14, 15 through 31. He's going to send his Spirit And the presence of his spirit is going to be better than if Jesus' physical presence had remained. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I go. Because it's only in Jesus going that he will eventually be sending the spirit of the living God. So what does Jesus teach us here about the spirit? How is the spirit's presence better than Jesus' physical presence. First, Jesus teaches that the Spirit will dwell in us. The Spirit of God will take up residence in the people of God. That's what he's going to say. So picking back up in verse 15, Jesus starts off using this covenantal language. He says, "'If you love me, you will keep my commandments.'" 
He later says something similar in verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. So again, this is covenantal language. These are terms of a covenant relationship, much like wedding vows. It's as if a wife is saying to her husband, if you love me, you will keep your wedding day vows. Whoever has my hand in marriage and holds it, he it is who loves me. This is covenantal language that gives the terms to the arrangement of the relationship. And we've talked about before how in the other gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in those other gospel accounts, this scene in the Last Supper, the theme of God's new covenant established by Jesus, it's a very important theme in the Last Supper in the way that Matthew, Mark, and Luke share it. Well, Jesus is reaffirming that same thing here in his account. If you love me, if you are truly in relationship with me and a keeper of the covenant vows or commandments, then I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. And this other helper, verse 17, is the spirit of truth. Now the world cannot receive this spirit, Jesus says, because the world is not in covenant relationship with God. The world does not see him or know him, but you, my followers, you know him, the spirit, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So there it is in black and white. The spirit of God, the spirit of truth dwells within followers of Jesus. This means that God by his spirit is closer to us now than Jesus was to the disciples sitting around that table at the Last Supper. God, by His Spirit, is closer to us now than Jesus was to the disciples sitting at table with Him. So let me ask you, Christian, which would you rather have? Would you rather have Jesus' physical presence to accompany you and you accompany Him? Sounds pretty cool, right? I mean, I've seen the movies. I've seen The Chosen. Jesus is really cool. Would you rather have Jesus' physical presence to accompany you, or would you rather have the Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit in you? Now, this question kind of confronts, as one author puts it, how profoundly materialistic we can be. Because I think if we're honest, we would much rather touch Him and see Him and hear Him in person in the flesh. But Jesus says, you should rejoice that you can't hear me. You should rejoice that you can't touch me. You should rejoice that you can't see me because it's only in leaving that Jesus will soon be sending his spirit to live in us. And then skipping ahead to verse 20, Jesus explains this further in the most mind-boggling way. He says in verse 20, In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Now, what he says here is, at least for me, quite deep and perplexing even, so I created this hopefully helpful, even if simplistic, Microsoft Paint diagram. So what... <laughs> I worked a long time on this. So what Jesus says here is what theologians refer to as the mutual indwelling of the believer in God and God in the believer. 
And this diagram of concentric circles, you can see the at least three layers to the way God dwells in us and we dwell in him. So the first layer, as Jesus puts it, I am in my Father. In other words, Jesus and the Father are united. I am in the Father, Jesus says. But not only is Jesus in the Father, the second layer inward, I am in my Father and you, my disciples, are in me. The believer dwells in Jesus. However, he says that it goes one layer deeper. I am in my Father, you are in me, and I am in you. Uh, Meg and I had a pastor one, t- one time that illustrated this with the concentric way that Tupperware can fit inside one another. You got the larger Tupperware, and then really nicely the smaller one fits in, and really nice, you know. And I just couldn't go there. I couldn't do the Tupperware illustration. I went with the diagram. What's going on here? This is almost head spinning to try to even wrap your minds around, like, how does this even work? Well, I think we must say that there is something mysterious. There is something almost incomprehensible about this. But regardless, what is clear is that Jesus is describing for his followers who are in covenant relationship with him that we have the most intimate, unbreakable relationship with us. He dwells in us. We dwell in him. We mystically, spiritually indwell one another such that we could not possibly be any closer to God, even though Jesus is no longer physically present. Again, God is closer to us now than Jesus was to those disciples sitting at table with him. And this is why the disciples should rejoice. They should be happy that Jesus is leaving because upon dying, rising, and descending, Jesus will soon be sending his Holy Spirit to be amongst them and to be in them. So I want to ask you, believer, do you feel abandoned? On your journey through life, as you encounter the different twists and turns and trials, do you feel alone? Do you feel orphaned? And in your pain, has it ever just erupted out of your mouth? God, where are you? Well, I want to encourage you with at least two things. First, you are not alone in feeling alone. The disciples here with Jesus were feeling it. And many of the pilgrims in this room know that same ache. And we are with you. And I also want to encourage you, That through faith in Jesus and by His Spirit inside of you, you may feel alone on earth, but you have a union with God in heaven. The Spirit of God lives in you. Jesus is in the Father. You are in Jesus and Jesus is in you. You may not feel Him. You may not see Him. You may not hear Him. But despite appearances, you are closer to Jesus than Peter, James, and John could have ever dreamed about while he was in his earthly ministry. So what does Jesus teach us here about the Spirit? How is the Spirit's presence better than Jesus' physical presence? First, the Spirit dwells within us. And then lastly, the Spirit keeps us in the truth. He dwells in us and He keeps us in the truth. So again, starting in verse 21... 
Jesus shares similar words to what he said in verse 15. It's this covenantal language expressing the way that Jesus' followers are committed to God and God is committed to Jesus' followers. On the one hand, he says that those who truly love Jesus will keep his commands. On the other hand, he says the Father lovingly reciprocates, loving those who love Jesus and manifesting himself to them. But after he reiterates this truth, he's asked by one of the disciples, verse 22, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not manifest yourself to the world? So what seems to be going on here is that this disciple is expecting that when Messiah comes, he will manifest himself in this huge, dramatic, worldwide display of the kingdom of God. The common perception of the day was that the Messiah would arrive with fire blazing and guns a-blasting in order to right every wrong, overthrow wickedness, and visibly, tangibly establish the kingdom of heaven on earth, especially by overthrowing the Roman Empire at the time. So this disciple is like, hey, how are you going to do that? How are you going to manifest yourself and the world not know? Jesus answers the question, verse 23, by once again restating this covenant language. On the one hand, those who love Jesus will keep his word, and on the other hand, the Father loves those who love and obey Jesus. And the Father will make his home with them. These are terms of the covenant relationship between us and God. We love and obey Jesus, keeping his word, and the Father loves us and dwells in us. So what Jesus stresses here is God manifesting himself in believers and through their lives of obedience. But the world can't experience this. The world can't see this manifestation of God because as Jesus said in verse 17, the world does not receive the Spirit. The world does not know the Spirit. And as he says here in verse 24, the world does not love Jesus or keep his word. But Church, by God's grace and through faith in Jesus, we have received the Spirit and God has manifested Himself to us by taking up residence within us. And we are now enabled and empowered by the force of God's Spirit in us to keep His Word. Contrary to the world, What distinguishes us from the world as those who know God is that we have the Spirit of God and thus are able to obey God. And our obedience is not by sheer force of will. Our obedience is not because we are morally superior to the world. Far from it. Our newfound obedience that marks us as those who are in covenant with God, our obedience is ultimately the fruit of the Holy Spirit working and living inside of us. The Spirit keeps us in the truth. I'll try to give an example of this. And this analogy is so shallow. I'm sorry. I'm reaching here, but bear with me. So as you guys know, I, like the rest of us, am a resident here in Southeast Michigan. And I know, as a citizen of Southeast Michigan, that I should cheer for and support the Detroit Lions, Right? Like, it is my moral obligation. It is what I ought to do. I have some friends in this church. They cheer for the Packers. They've turned to the Eagles. And I judge those people. (laughs) Because we, yes, because we should cheer and support for the Lions. 
It is our obligation. It is what we ought to do. But I don't want to. And it is not in me. It is not in me to fulfill this obligation. (laughs) However, it is in my bones. It is deep in my DNA almost to cheer for and support the Tennessee Titans. Like, I don't even have to try. I couldn't not follow the Titans if I wanted to. I cannot shake my faithful obedience to the Titans. It's in me. And furthermore, the analogy works even better here. This power to follow the Titans was given to me by my father. (laughs) This inward compulsion, this inward presence stamped so deep within me and my brothers. (laughs) My father's followed this franchise since the 70s and I received deep into my soul this passion and power and loyalty to the Titans. Now, there's something of analogy here for how the world and Christians experience obedience to God. Many in the world know that they should live righteously. Many in the world know that they ought to be loving. Our conscience is clear on this. Our laws, many religions teach just as such. We should be good, just like I should pull for the lines. But what do we all find out? Just because we know we should behave doesn't mean that we do. And we fall way short of God's standards. We even fall short of our own man-made standards. But what God is doing in the new covenant is gifting Jesus' followers with his holy presence, abiding amongst us and within us so that he gets into our bones. Just like my passion for the Titans. It becomes stamped onto our our DNA almost to faithfully follow Jesus, to lovingly obey Jesus. We could not quit Jesus if we wanted to. That's how deep within us he gets. Being this close to Jesus through the Spirit, being empowered by Jesus for faithful obedience through the Spirit. That's why Jesus says, you should rejoice that I'm leaving. Now that Jesus is gone, He has sent the Spirit who dwells in us so we are never alone and He empowers us so that we can obey our new covenant obligations to love Him and to love one another. Do we obey these commandments Perfectly? By no means. We obey them very imperfectly, but we are progressing, however slowly, sometimes three steps forward, two steps back. We are not perfect, but we are progressing, and we couldn't shake him if we wanted to. He's that deep in us. So if that's you, if you are one who loves and follows Jesus, however imperfectly, then the meal that we are about to share together is for you. As Jesus explains in the accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this communion meal is a meal that establishes the new covenant relationship between God and his people. 
through Jesus' broken body and through his shed blood, we are not only forgiven for our sin, we are freed from the power of sin. And we are now filled with the power of the Spirit to love Jesus and to faithfully follow him. Again, it does not mean that our record of obedience is perfect. But it is progressing, however slowly. It doesn't mean that we always perfectly obey him. But it does mean that we cannot shake him. He's in our bones. He's stamped on our DNA. He is in us. And we are in him. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.